This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we talk with the CEO of an aircraft upholstery specialist and learn about that portion of the aircraft interior space. In the news, airline loyalty programs are changing, unapproved spare parts are plaguing the airline industry, and Boeing is expanding its presence in India. All that and more, coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 767 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me first is Rob Mark, contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI. He's been an air traffic controller, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. Hey, good evening, everybody. It's nice to be here again. Also with us is David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, everybody. Uh, looking forward to an interesting conversation tonight. Yes, yes. And to help us with that is our main man, Micah. Hi, Micah. Hey, thanks for having me back. I guess apparently uh, after Yom Kippur today, I made all my amends, and so you decided to let me back in. I guess so. If you're uh, wondering, Max Trescott is off this episode. He's out flying. I th- is he doing a ferry flight or something? I'm, I'm not y- sure. Yes, he said he is, and on the way back, he's flying a helicopter, so he's going to get a little— uh, Oh, that's right. I was going to say a little left seat time, but that's an airplane. Yeah. It's a little right seat time. In the helicopter. And David, have have we ever discerned why helicopters, uh, PIC, are from the right seat? I remember you told me that once, I think. Because of the collection? You mean what everybody in the cockpit thinks? or? Well, yeah, no, yeah, exactly. The, the collective stick is what changes the pitch of the rotors, and it's usually located on the uh, right side so that... Igor Sikorsky, when he first was flying these helicopters, flew with his right hand on the cyclic and his left hand, because he was right-handed, on the collective. So that's why, as a general rule, that's why you sit on the right, is because so you can use, you can use the collective in the center of the cockpit, not outside by the door. And the collective is the up-down handbrake thing, right? Okay. I thought it was because they could only do the one collective, so they needed to place it in the center so that if there were going to be two pilots, both could use it. That's the other reason, that early ones, yes. Okay. There's there's this episode's helicopter lesson. All right. Well, we have a guest this episode. That's uh, Jacobo Mesta. He's CEO of Soisa Aircraft Interiors. Now, they're an aircraft upholstery specialist. They're headquartered in Chihuahua, Mexico. They also have a facility in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. It's a family-owned and run business. It was founded in 2006, and they provide a range of flexible design and manufacturing services. That includes prototyping, product and quality engineering, and the integration of foams, composites, and other interior parts. Now, the company employs over 250 workers across its sites, and they have the capacity to manufacture over 45 ship sets. And the company works with all major seat OEMs. Its products are currently flying on more than 100 airlines worldwide. 
And uh, Soiza also has a robust ESG program. We'll be talking about that. That's Environmental, Social, and Governance Program. Jacobo, well, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thank you very much, Max. Very excited to hear to be here with the team, Max, Mika, David, and Rob. Let's make it. Let's try to make it a fun, a fun day, a fun night. And uh, excited to be here to talk about aviation, talk about industry, uh, about interiors. Um, anything you guys want to pick our brains about? Perfect. Perfect. Okay, well, wait a minute. I have to interrupt. You said you wanted it to be fun, so that I might as well ask the other question. Is Chihuahua really where those little dogs come from? <laughs> well, that's – so I, I was in a seminar uh, uh, last week in Seattle. It's called Red Cabin about cabin interior innovation, actually. And it's a pretty cool event. Everybody gets together. We all pick our brains about innovation, what's coming, what's not. I was a speaker in one of the – and the panels about uh, sustainability. And before that, there was like a, a dating session, uh, quick dating or meeting people. Okay. And out of the 20 people that I met, uh, practically half of them had been in Chihuahua or had worked in Chihuahua. So when I was in the panel, I'm like, hey, guys, I'm so glad that uh, there's a lot of people that actually know that Chihuahua is a town and not only a dog <laughs> or, or a song because <laughs> it's also a song, right? Yeah. And I don't know, there is no actual data that says that Chihuahua dogs come from here. Oh. Uh, so we do have a lot of them here, but there's no data that I've seen that they actually, the breed comes from the state of Chihuahua or the city of Chihuahua. Okay. But okay. we are the biggest you- state in Mexico. All right. But you'll get back to us on that, right? Now we know. I will get back to you on that. <laughs> okay. All right. For sure. <laughs> All right. Perfect. All right. Well, let's start off with some of the aviation news from the past week. Are you guys ready? Midwest is on. Mainly ready. Delaware's ready. Our first item comes from the Atlantic. This is airlines are just banks now. Oh, the Atlantic says that airlines, quote, make more money from mileage programs than from flying planes, and it shows. Uh, they describe how Delta Airlines recently announced changes to his to its Sky Miles program. Uh, the uh, medallion status is changing. Historically, it's been part of, or it's been a, a combination, based on a combination of dollars spent and miles traveled. Now, in this revised program, status is based on dollars spent, which means on the affinity credit cards, and um, the amount of spending required to get status is going up. In the article, uh, it uh, says that um, the airline is retiring medallion qualifying miles and medallion qualifying segments, said focus on this refined version. And... The Atlantic says Sky Miles are no longer a frequent flyer program. It's a big spender program. So I mean, we've known that, and we've had some, uh, at least one guest talk to us about the airline credit card aspect to this and how um, that's a big revenue generator. But um, we uh, we see now that uh, even the, the points guy himself is becoming a little bit disillusioned with these kinds of changes. Uh, Mike, I mean, we we, we kind of knew this was coming, didn't we? Yeah, we talked about this a little bit. We On episode 740, we had a guest, uh, Mark Ross Smith, who was really a great guest. And we talked about 
status match and, and status points and what was happening with this. And, um, and it's just not sustainable over the long run. What's interesting about this article in The Atlantic is that the author really is lamenting deregulation. Hmm. and has said that deregulation is really what's killing the airline industry. And in fact, if you think about it, it has. Uh, he talks about how um, how prices have really not gone down. They did for a bit, but they're back up. And that there are really four monopoly airlines in the USA. And there used to be many, many more. So the idea of competition, which is what deregulation was all about, didn't instill competition it eliminated competition so it's a very interesting article but what i think is more fascinating is over the past couple of weeks senator uh, durbin has been working toward legislation to reduce credit card swipe fees and we talked about that in episode 740 they want to eliminate or or reduce those swipe fees because every business wherever you swipe a credit card you're paying that company at least two percent if not more, of the purchase. And that's because it's, uh, as Clark Howard, who is a uh, uh, consumer advocate, says, it's, it's a monopoly industry. The swipe fees either go to Visa or MasterCard. Once those swipe fees are reduced or removed or eliminated, we're not going to be able to get points anymore. There won't be credit card rewards. You know, I choose not to get airline rewards. I get cash back. But that's going to disappear, too, because the the uh, credit card companies aren't going to be able to afford to do so. There, there was a time in my life where I sold credit cards for L.L. Bean. For every returned application that I got, the company got 50 bucks. And I would get, oh, two or 300 applications a day. <laughs> so uh, that's what the banks were paying because it, they make a fortune. Jacobo, you must have, uh, well, you probably do a lot of traveling yourself, um, yeah. Some of it internationally. Uh, what are you thinking? Do you um, take advantage of airline credit cards and loyalty programs yourself? Yeah, I actually, uh, now you mention it, um, I fly a lot. So we have two direct flights to Dallas, and it's, uh, it's our major international uh, hub from Chihuahua. So every time, and it's only American Airlines, so every time you fly, they offer you this credit card. Uh, sadly, since I'm Mexican, I can't apply to that, and I've tried to apply to that, uh, but I, I'm not able to. But I am able to apply to other credit cards, for for example, Aeromexico and other credit cards in, in, in Mexican airlines. And, um, you know, uh, sad part is that, and you mentioned it, Mika, you you ask for, for um, cash back. Sometimes I, I think that might even be more worth it because – then you try to uh, get your point, use your points, and it's not easy to use. And in the companies that that at least I have the most points on, then they charge you a lot of uh, a, a, um, an interest or not an interest, but a, a tax because they will give you the the plane ticket, but you have to pay for the remaining taxes that you have to pay for the airport or other stuff. And it comes that either you use it for a very expensive flight. Or you just don't use it because the other flights are the same as paying the taxes. And then the loyalty points, I don't know, but I think uh, it's it just gotten more difficult and difficult. For example, the now that I fly to Dubai a lot, I had to switch to Turkish Airlines, and I'm starting to get points in Turkish. Then during the pandemic, I was a platinum in, in Mexico. They didn't fly. I couldn't fly, and they reduced me to titanium. 
so you keep on losing all these kinds of benefits of using this this points rewards points unless you have like a company organizing the whole thing for you to not lose anything. Brian and I got an, an email question on the Journey is a Reward episode 51 about how to redeem points with American Airlines, and we explained that. It's, it's a very complex process. On months with an R in them, on the third Tuesday, <laughs> if you accumulated 533,000 points before turning the age of 37, you're allowed to get one flight to Hawaii only if you have a child under the age of 15. And it's very, very difficult, but, but you know, once you learn the rules, it, it makes it much simpler. And, and it's, it's in 30, 34B right next to the bathroom, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> But but you know what I thought was interesting is Ganesh in that story mentioned something that we have all kind of talked about and and assumed was happening that the airlines really do not care. They don't care that they inconvenience us. They don't care that the seats are tight. They don't care that uh, uh, you have to wait at the other end uh, for forty five minutes to get your bags. They don't care because there's only a few of them. And where are you going to go? I mean, and that's really the truth. And uh, I mean, after the pandemic, uh, uh, oh, let's see, maybe uh, end of last year, I think I started getting uh, notes from Americans saying your your advantage points are going to expire in in uh, in June. And I thought, well, you know, what's that about? Why should they Why should they expire? I either spent the money or I didn't. Well, of course. That's the way I look at it. They don't care. And so uh, before we took that trip to Europe, um, I made sure that uh, we were booking on uh, some uh, airlines that shared with American. And I called the American guys. I said, okay, so I'm, I'm taking this trip to Europe and we're going to be, you know, we're going to be England and Ireland and Italy and back. You know, so this will qualify so that I can keep my points. Uh, I won't lose them. He said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, I lost my points. Hmm. Uh, and it, it, didn't, it didn't count. And Americans said, boy, that's really too bad. But that's the way it goes. And uh, so I, I think it's all a racket anyway. Well, it's pretty complicated. And I'm curious to see where, if anywhere, this bill in Congress goes to, to reduce those swipe fees. Because it's not just the aviation industry that's built around you know this process and these and these fees uh, you know everybody that you do business with has a you know a loyalty yeah. credit card with points or you know some uh, cash back or or some benefit it's become at least in the United States anyway so ingrained in the economy that i'm not sure you can you know kind of disassemble it and say that well, well you have to we're going to legislate reduced fees but i'm curious to see where it goes well, I'm, I'm very concerned about it, frankly, because while I want to, th when I think about it, I say, yeah, I want the fees to be reduced. I want the local businesses to not have to pay so much. When I think about it, I'm really going to be at a disadvantage because, because the businesses don't have to pay so much. It doesn't mean the prices that I'm paying are going to be reduced. They're not going to cut my prices. And then I'm going to lose the points that I'm accumulating. So really, it's a, for me, it's a lose-lose. Uh, so it's almost like, yeah, I'd rather keep the monopoly. I think it works best for the general public. Anyway. Yeah, here in Mexico, you cannot – it's like you said. They won't reduce the price 2% because that's the commission of the bank or 3%. And here in Mexico, you cannot go to a place and say – they cannot tell you, hey, if you pay cash, it's 100 
If you pay credit card, it's 103. Oh. They can't say that. Oh, interesting. So they just charge 103, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been encountering more and more places that uh, give you a, basically a, you know, a cash discount. In other words, if, if, or, or a surcharge, usually around 3%. I find that, that's right. If you pay I was just going to mention the surcharge too. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it is appearing more and more. But again, what 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 leverage do we have? Yeah. I don't yeah. see. So it's an interesting article in the Atlantic, and um, you know, I invite you to take a, a look at it if you're interested. There's there's kind of a chronology of airline loyalty programs that's um, kind of interesting and in how the. Uh, Airline deregulation in 1978 kind of set in motion a, a sequence of events that led to, uh, you know, the the mess that we have, or as uh, they call it, the sprawling points system that we that we have. Um, there's also some discussion of uh, how the points work and how airlines sell points to banks with co-branded credit cards and how all of that use. Uh, or how, how all of that is done, but there's what there's one extremely to me interesting statistic in there. It's almost mind-boggling, and it says in the article that consumers now uh, charge nearly one percent of the U.S. GDP, gross domestic product, to Delta's American Express credit cards alone. One percent of the GDP of the United States is charged. To those credit cards, that's just mind-boggling. Yeah, but what I think is really fascinating, and I think you mentioned it a little earlier, Max, and it's the last thing I'll say on this is when you know the Points Guy, which is a great website for hotel and aviation, airline and points and stuff like that. And I think uh, Aunt Bonet worked for them for a while. But when the Points Guy said they're no longer go- they're going to stop chasing airline status, yeah. that means okay, yeah, it means it's worthless. That's big. All right, let's uh, move on to an article. Um, this is in Yahoo, finance.yahoo.com. Escalating scandal grips airlines, including American and Southwest, wreaking havoc on flight delays. Now, this is pretty serious. Airlines around the world have been announcing that they have found parts sourced from a company called AOG Technics, parts that lack proper documentation. That's not good. That's about as bad as it can get, yes. Um, especially as a you know as a former engine guy, um, but allegedly parts were sold to shops repairing CFM International jet engines, and they're illegitimate parts. Now, engine parts are very expensive and typically have very high margins, and that's because engines are often sold at huge discounts or or even at a loss in some cases. And the OEMs make that up with high-margin spare parts. For a clean sheet engine program, just to kind of give you an idea how this works, it's not unusual for the cash flow to take 20 years to go net positive. All right, This is why this is such an attractive uh, um, area for people who um, are doing illegal things. But, you know, there's... High development costs, billions of dollars at the beginning of a, a new engine program, and there's no revenue, just cost. Um, then you have engine sales eventually come in, usually at huge discounts, but there's no real spare parts stream at the beginning. And eventually, engines require maintenance and spare parts, and those orders begin to trickle in and, and kind of grow over time. 
And after uh, a period of time, as these engines mature, then kind of a robust aftermarket for spare parts develops. And then you also have PMAs. PMAs begin to enter the market. That's parts manufacturer approval. That's where a part can be manufactured by someone other than the OEM for use on uh, type certified aircraft. So you have this growing market for high margin parts and some unscrupulous people try to take advantage of that. Now, these unapproved parts can be parts not manufactured by the OEM or a PMA, or they could be parts that are not repaired or overhauled to the manual, or they can be parts that lack valid paperwork. And that seems to be the case here where EASA, the European Aviation Safety Agency, says that certain documents had been forged to make it appear as if AOG Technics parts had come from legitimate manufacturers. So this stuff this stuff permeates the industry. Um, it's a uh, big, big problem. Yeah, and there's a process for that, and but it has to be it has to be approved by the FAA or by EASA, and it's a it's a difficult process to get a PMA or to uh, release a Form One by EASA. It's doable, but it's a process, and it's not easy, and it's it's it takes time in order to get it certified by the FAA to comply with all the airworthiness and all the processes that have to be done. And I'm guessing that for air, if for dress covers is hard, I can imagine for engine parts, it's got to be like really, really hard, right? Yes. I, I was going to ask, you know, we'll, we'll get into this more later, uh, Jacobo, but I'm sure that, you know, you have to go through all sorts of certifications and things to get your, your products on, on, on an aircraft and, and worldwide. How, how do you do that? What kind of documentation do you have to put together to do something like that? Yeah. First of all, if you, dry, if you um, manufacture directly to the OEMs, you have to be at least AS9100 certified, Part 21, MRO, some certification that will, will tell that you ha- you're running a quality system that it's approved by the FAA or ASA. So we are AES 9100 certified here in Chihuahua. Uh, we are POA or uh, MOA uh, in in Dubai. And that, that allows us to run through a, a certain certification process that it's already uh, approved by one of those agencies, right? Um, <clears throat> but then when you, go to, when, you, when you want to go into the aftermarket, it's a little bit different because... Either you are manufacturing the original part number, and you and that has to be authorized by the OEM. So if you're if you're doing a Pratt and Whitney part, it has to be allowed. And I I manufactured it to Pratt, Pratt and Whitney. Then I have to be authorized by them in order to manufacture and sell it to a third party. If I am not certified uh, authorized by them, we call it DSA Direct Shipment Authorization. If you don't have a DSA with the OEM. Then you have to go through this certification process that uh, yeah, it, it, they call it the PMA. And it's a tough and difficult and lengthy process to get uh, approved by them to uh, manufacture a, a alternate part number and do reverse engineering on that and create a new part number and do a PMA to deliver to the, to the aftermarket. But it's, it's a very lengthy process. It's difficult. It's very controlled. Which, as as uh, flyers, uh, you know, we all are, are happy about that because the, you know the temptation can be great, as I said before about the you know the high margins that 
are often associated with these things. But paperwork is, you know, is king. If there's no paperwork, I remember, uh, you know, working in an engine overhaul shop, and if if there was a part, a specific serial number or some part that its paperwork was incomplete, that was as good as having none and the part being completely unserviceable. If right. if um, you know, sometimes you would have to correct for that by having the part re-overhauled and reissued with new uh, new paperwork, just so that it could be incorporated. You know, into an engine, you know, very, very controlled. So it's kind of surprising to me that uh, this company that's the subject of uh, this, this investigation and all AOG Technics, uh, it's almost insane to me that someone thinks they could get away with something like this because it is so controlled. You're, you're going to get caught eventually. And you just hope that, you know, someone's airplane doesn't fall out of the sky because you've uh, sold apart as genuine That's very when risky. it's not. And you can't blame America. They did America. get away with it, didn't they? See that, Rob? I say they did get away with it, didn't they? They they did to this point, yeah. Yeah, and, they, and there are apparently um, airplanes flying from a number of airlines, American, Southwest, and perhaps others, that uh, have have parts that were purchased from AOG Technics. And uh, so I think they're in the process now of you know identifying those instances and taking a look at those, verifying that, that they're legitimate parts or not. And if they're not, they'll have to be removed. And you can't blame the airline. You know, they're talking about the scandal. The headline makes it seem like the airlines are, are, are to blame for it. They received forged documents. They looked good. They looked real. They did what they did their due diligence and installed parts that they thought were good based on what I'm reading here. So – yeah, it was a terrible mistake, and it could be very dangerous. But it's not necessarily the the airline's fault. I'm not sure where the fault lies, actually. Yeah. So I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about this as uh, as this all proceeds. Uh, but moving on to uh, another story. This is from Aviation A to Z, Boeing new facility outside the U.S. to open sooner. And Boeing is opening a 43-acre complex. In Bengaluru, uh, Bengaluru, <laughs> India, uh, it's going to include laboratories and testing infrastructure, research and development activities, and they say it's going to create about 3,000 jobs. Boeing announced uh, an investment, a big investment. This was following an order from Air India in the past for 2787 Dreamliners, 10 7 Xs, and 190 737 MAX aircraft. Uh, Boeing does have other facilities in India, maybe most notably the Boeing India Engineering and Technology Center. Um, but this new complex is a, um, you know, a large undertaking. The thing that's interesting to me uh, when um, people unfamiliar with the industry see something like this, they go, why is Boeing, in, you know, why are they creating jobs in India? Why don't they create jobs in the United States? Yeah, which is a, you know, I mean, it's a, Legitimate question, but I think it goes back to that order from from Air India. Frequently, uh, and Hakobo, uh, I think you probably know this. Uh, frequently in this industry, if uh, if there's a big order, um, the customer has a certain amount of bargaining power, and uh, oftentimes that's used to bring work into the uh, into that country, and and so this sort of thing happens. Uh, 
fairly frequently. Yeah, and um, on your comment on Air India, I think um, that is on on the right track because India does actually tell you or they don't obligate you, but they, they do insist that everything they wanted manufactured in India. Uh, so this, I mean, you've heard about this nearshoring term. Uh, we got a lot of nearshoring in Mexico because it's people that want to come to manufacture in Mexico because their final client or market is the U.S. So it's it's a very smooth transition. That's what happened to us in Dubai. Emirates, Etihad, fly Dubai. They say, hey, if you want to keep working with us, you got to do something here locally. So that's why we opened our facility in Dubai. Um, obviously, it's not that big. Um, I don't. I don't know what the what the uh, complete scope of Boeing is going to be in India, but I'm pretty sure it goes on that track of saying, "Hey, all right, we'll buy those." Uh, it's between Indigo and Air India. I mean, they got like 600, 700 aircraft. So, hey, you better do something here locally because uh, we're going to buy that big chunk from you. Exactly. And you see that happening in China as well in many instances uh, where uh, the uh, activities in in China end up being joint ventures between a a Chinese company and a company from another country, you know, the the Mm -hmm. seller country. The the lure of the market allows some of these um, joint ventures associations to to get created. Uh, There's downsides to that as well. And um, those have been pointed out by by many people. Is the Dubai facility, is it open and operating or is this something that's just being set up? No, no. We actually opened in October of last year. Ah. So we started uh, producing already and delivering to Fly Dubai, Emirates, and Etihad since practically November of last year. So we've been up and running. We're actually already planning on an expansion of another 1,000 meters, 10,000 square feet. Hmm. Um because uh, it's it's growing, it's growing, and and they they op- they have a lot of uh, <clears throat> they have a lot of free zones in Dubai where they help you to get established really quickly. So that's also very supportive, and it's not like in China they have to partner up with somebody. Uh, for, it used to be like that where you have to partner up with a, with a, somebody from the Middle East. Now it's not. Now it's open in, in certain industries. It's open that you can open your own company without having anybody to, to partner up with. Isn't there a concern? I know in, in China there was, and perhaps in India, because they're both major manufacturing and technologically advanced countries, that the technology is going to be taken and they'll be making in China, they're starting to make their own aircraft and commercial aircraft, and that the same thing would happen in India when the manufacturing happens there and people are being, local people are being hired to learn the, the, uh, the techniques. Yeah, I call that technology leakage, where it's it's not a explicit or overt, maybe that may be too strong a word, uh, technology transfer, but just by virtue of the fact that you're setting up operations in a foreign country, then yeah, they uh, uh, they're going to learn something whether mm-hmm. whether you you want it or not. Um, but it's you know it, it's kind of a balanced risk. I mean, do you? Uh, um, sell billions of dollars into China, for example, now and for the next 20 years, given that 20 or 30 years from now, they're going to be able to do it themselves, you know, without you. You know, it's how do you make that call? Yeah, because at the end of the day, you're hiring only local people hmm. or around the area. In our facility in Dubai, we have 
30 people from Sri Lanka and five people from India. Interesting. Again, we're speaking with Jacobo from Soisa. And I was looking at the history of the company. Uh, if you go back to the very beginnings, uh, I guess it was actually a jeans manufacturer that uh, that pivoted in, uh, what was it, 2006? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So uh, this, this is a family-owned business, as you mentioned before, Max. And uh, since 1949, my grandfather started a jean company here in Chihuahua. We had over 5,000 people doing jeans. I don't know if you remember in the U.S. a jean brand of Billy the Kid. So there was the – yeah, you remember that, uh, Maker? Make so th- we used to do all the Billy the Kid jeans here. Huh. And uh, that was for 50 years or more than that. And, and then uh, we, we opened – we had a facility here, and then we had another facility in Veracruz. Because we didn't have enough people here, so we had to open another facility in Veracruz. So between both, we we ended up having about seven thousand people working in jeans. And uh, in two thousand and three, two thousand four, the Chinese came to Mexico with no taxes on denim, and we went completely bankrupt. Wow. So two thousand four, two thousand five, we're letting go seven thousand people. So it, it was crazy, right? Yeah, and then um, that that was like a, a time for kind of reinvention and thinking, what can we do now? Um, what do we switch? So that's when my father and his brother came up with um, aerospace. You, you said uh, Veracruz. I used to live in Jalapa, and uh, the, the best paella I've ever had every time was in Veracruz. <laughs> so that's what I thought of. <laughs> so yeah, so um, in two thousand and six. Safran, in that time, Zodiac had just arrived in Chihuahua, doing uh, in with one of their first uh, plants. Now they have now they have seven plants here in in Chihuahua. And in the, in one of their first facilities, they were doing canopies, canopies for the life rafts of the plane. Hmm. So that's when they contacted us and they said, "Hey, uh, can you guys do?" The canopies. I know you, we know you've been doing a lot of uh, dress, uh, a lot of jeans, and you know how to cut and sew, and do this. And I, yeah, yeah, we can do it. So that's when my father and his brother called up uh, five new five guys from the old days, and they started Soisa Aircraft Interiors uh, with seven people doing the canopies, and that's how they helped us to get AES ninety one hundred certified by doing those canopies with them. Uh, later on, when we finalized all that, they introduced us to their sister company, at that time Zodiac Seats US, that they do dress covers. So that's when we started doing the dress covers for Safran or Zodiac at the time. Actually, it was Weber at the time. So we started doing that since 2006, and then we grew from there doing dress covers uh, up until now. And then we started to add value, right? So at the beginning, we were a build-to-print company. They would practically send us the drawings, send us the materials, and then we were just manufacture and send back. Hmm. But then we started adding value. We started buying the material. We started doing the drawings. We started doing engineering. We started doing cushions so we can dress the covers. We started doing the integration. Uh, then we added an internal own lab laboratory in, in our facility here so we can do a lot of the cushion tests, uh, material testing, 
um, so we can know what's going to pass flammability and what doesn't and um, do comfort studies for the cushions and stuff like that. And that's when we started growing on value added on the company. Hmm. Uh, then up until next last year, we started doing also adding capacities of CNC's uh, for foams, CNC for composite panels. So now we're actually doing uh, part of a sub-assembly of the business class consoles for for a company in, in, in Seattle, US, and sending them a, a sub-assembly of their, of their seat structure. So we grew from doing build-to-print to now doing practically design and engineering and drawings of the complete dress covers and cushions to also doing the the composite panels, acoustic panels, and sub-assemblies to seat OEMs as well. And also, as we were mentioning before, the aftermarket. So one of our big interests and goals for the next years is grow directly with the aftermarket on, on dress covers, cushions, uh, and other parts for working directly with the airlines. So yeah, it, it's, a, it's a very funny story, and, and it's a very well-known story in, in town because uh, somebody still, they call us Billy the Kid. <laughs> and it's like, hey, uh, we're hiring people. Where are the building kid? Because we're in the same building since 1949, which is remodeled. It would change it. So we're still there. It's a great story. It's a it's a great success story. Yes. Thank you. So who who are your customers? The component manufacturers for the Boeings and Airbuses or Embraer's? Or are you working directly with those um, air framers? So, so we can say that we have two different customers. One of them is the seat manufacturer, like uh, Saffron, Recaro, Collins, Jamco, uh, all those guys that do the, the seat structure uh, because they would sell to the airline a complete dressed seat. So they would contact us. They hire us so we can manufacture the cushion cover and they can deliver a complete seat to the airline. <clears throat> but then we also have the airline after it's flying and uh, when they – when they do the aftermarket, well, with the airline, we have two different types of, uh, of sale. We can sell directly to the airline since the line fits in the new aircraft. And they would say to the seat OEM, Hey, uh, this is the example we did with fly Dubai, for example, fly Dubai say, all right, I'll buy you Recaro seats, but I'm going to buy the dress cover directly from Soisa. So whenever you start delivering my seats, then, uh, so is going to send you the cover, you dress it, you deliver it to us. So that's when we go in, from the beginning with the airline. And then the other one is in the aftermarket. If they need, if they don't want to go to the OEM anymore and they come directly to the seat uh, cover manufacturer, then we have to go to those processes that we, we talked in the past about PMAs or EASA Form 1s and stuff like that, that for dress covers is not as hard as on a, on a turbine or on an engine, but it does have to go all the way through uh, FAA or EASA certification process which will take time. That's when they become our, our client as well. So that would be like uh, the equivalent of uh, the airline being a, uh, a car owner that wants to get the car reupholstered. The airline wants to get the, the, the seats reupholstered. They go to you and they say, we need this, and, and, and you come up with, with what you'll do for them. Yes. Either I do it through a DSA with Safran, for example, and uh, Safran would authorize me to do the same part number that we, I did in the past, or we have to go through a certification process for FAA or or EASA, depending on what the airline can can do or wants to do. Because sometimes 
Uh, it takes uh, some engineering work, and and we talk when you talk about engineering with OEMs and airlines, they're always busy and they never have time to do any changes. So it gets more complicated with that. Well, it's also I, I would think that part of what you have to look at. I, I'm, I'm thinking of, of this, you know, sitting in my 737, and I'm reading in front of me your your seat cushion can be used as a flotation device. So when you're manufacturing that, you have you're you're also creating a safety product when it comes right down to it. It's not just a a comfort product, is what I would I'm thinking. Is is that right? Yeah, correct, correct, and it has to go through flotation tests as well. Jacobo, what are the the design criteria? like for something like a, a seat cover? Is it, I don't know, is it um, a fabric or weight or durability or what, what is it? So normally it starts with design houses. You have uh, very important design houses and mainly in the UK, there are most of them there. And they, the, the design, it normally it's always about weight. It's always about how much weight you can reduce on the dress cover and the cushion. And and also in the interior, also in the seat. And then it goes to, for example, long haul, they use a lot of fabric because you don't want to be sitting or laying down on a leather that it's going to be, you're going to be there for six hours, seven hours. And if it's it gets hot and it gets sweaty. So for long hauls, you see a lot of uh, fabric being used. But then you have the other part of the fabric that it, it'll – It'll, it'll start gaining a lot of weight because you drop water on it, because you drop a lot of things, and, and you can't really clean it. So that's why they have to go through different cleaning cycles. And when you, when you use fabric, they normally do about 10 cleaning cycles on the dress cover before changing it. Huh. Do they track those cleaning cycles? Yes, of course. Oh, that's interesting because that's like um... – I remember um, some turbine blades. They could be uh, they could be overhauled twice, but that was the limit, and they were scrapped. I never really thought of uh, you know something like uh, seat covers having a um, you know cycle limitation. Yeah, actually, on the on the label that when we manufacture the cover on the on the, one of the labels that we put, the label says the ten, so you can start marking them. And um, but yeah, that's that's for long hauls. But then you see a lot of uh, synthetic leather now running around uh you see you, you see united you see a lot of american changing from leather to synthetic leather for 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 short hauls i think that's a big trend as well doing uh using synthetic and engineered leather also for for um, ecological purposes um and then you still see leather right on on very uh first class couches or sofas you will see uh, a lot of leather as well, but they all start from design houses. Very complex designs, very picky, very uh, very trendy uh, designs, and then then they have to go through a manufacturability process to see if they can be manufactured, and, and then and then um, they decide if if the material that you they use it's going to be the correct one or not. Let me ask uh, a, a, a stupid question, maybe, but but it's, it's one that I'm curious about. You talked about synthetic leather, and whenever I think about sitting in a synthetic leather seat, and I don't want to gross out our listeners, but I just think about sitting in a pool of my own sweat. You know, I, and you've all experienced that, and you know what I'm talking about. How I'm do so you, grossed out. Yeah. But how, how do you come up with a design that's not going to make that happen in a situation like that? I'm sure those are things you have to take into consideration. Yeah, and, and you know what? We normally, as manufacturers, they don't take that opinion from us normally. they That's why it starts with the design house. 
but they are there are new products uh Mika, that are more breathable they they're not that plasticky if you want to call it that way uh that they're not breathable and then you start sweating right away so there are new products uh the products manufacturers for even for leather but leather synthetics uh they've been doing a good job on trying to change their products so they can be more durable more biodegradable or more uh ecological or more breathable and 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 you can and you can use it longer on a seat and then you have to be concerned in terms of these things in terms of, of fire safety and and smoke and off gassing and things like that too it must it, there must be so much to it that you have to consider when you're you're looking at fabrics that's that's like a point that cannot you cannot miss they all have to pla- pass flammability tests not only by themselves but now uh, one of the new trends on the dress covers is uh, is to laminate them. So what you do is you take the leather, the fabric, or the synthetic, and you glue a very small, thin layer of foam. And that makes it more aesthetic, more comfortable, and more durable. And you don't see it as baggy as uh, if you don't use the lamination. So now they don't only have to pass by themselves, the flammability test, they also have to pass on the stack up of the foam plus the glue plus the scrim plus the material. So do you do that stack up um, yourselves or is that a, a, yeah. a, a raw material? You do that yourselves. Yeah. So we choose the different foams, the, dif- the different uh, uh, size of the foam, the, the toughness and the tightness of the foam. So there's a bunch of different foams. So you can, cor- so you can find a good, uh, a good comfort or a good static back, especially back and bottom. Is that a big machine with rollers or something? How does that work? Yeah, so we have two different machines. We're actually one of the only companies that have both processes. One of them is by roll. So you put it like in a roll and it'll just pass by and glue it together. But there's also a hot press where you take advantage of a new design and you can press also the design and the foam on it. So you, you, you we call it the embossing or debossing. So embossing is when you put uh, on the heat press, and then you add a design on, for example, the Singapore, the Singapore uh, premium economy seat has some lines, right, across lines. So we have a tooling that when you, whenever you press it, you do the lamination and you press the design on it. Wow, are there a lot of other companies that have this capability, these kinds of capabilities? Not both, uh, but yes, some of them have the hot press to do it. Not a lot. There's uh, probably like three of us that have uh, a good lamination process worldwide. And um, the press, I think there's only two of us that have the the roll. Sorry. sorry. I was going to say, it sounds like debossing and embossing. Is that where the, where the two words you were saying, the differences? Uh, I don't know if I got the words right. It sounds like the difference between an intaglio ring and a cameo ring where one is out and one is in. Exactly. One is you, One, you see it in and the other one you'll touch it and you feel it out yeah exactly that that's exactly what it is so before we started recording i think you mentioned that you had been at an aircraft interiors was that the expo you were at or some other uh, event no uh we normally there's a the biggest expo for interiors is aax aircraft interiors show in hamburg that's that's the biggest show everyone's there uh we've been we've been uh uh, showing our booth there for for years, 
we always do tequila tasting there, so it's very, it's a very trendy and very. How come we're only finding out about this now? That happened yeah. last month. That doesn't seem right. <laughs> no, that's that actually happened in. It normally happens in April. This year was in in and beginning of June. Next week is going to be the last week of May, and then they go back to April. But it's always in Hamburg. The one that uh that I was mentioning yesterday, it's a it's a very nice event. And we were about 250 people in Seattle. Uh, and we practically get together two days on seminars and workshops to see what can we do to innovate on the interior of the cabin. Just that. We only talk about the interior of the cabin. How can we make it better? How can we reduce weight? How can we reduce? Uh, how can we make it more recyclable, reusable? Uh all these types of things. Uh, I mean, there was one workshop that we just talked about the latch of the tray table. Really? Yeah. How can you make it better? You're looking at it every day right in front of your face. How can we make it more usable or can we do something with that? Can we put a camera or can we do uh, – there? Were, imagine the bunch of ideas that came around, right? So that that's what it's all about. It's about uh, innovation. How can we – work on innovation on the cabin. So so were you got the guys that came up with the the slimline seat that is getting such uh rave horrible reviews from passengers? <laughs> That's from the designers. <laughs> what was the craziest idea? You mentioned tray tables. What's the craziest idea you heard? All right. So the craziest idea on this on this episode of uh 2 weeks ago it was that they said, all right, if I have a latch right in front of me and I'm not a guy that wants to talk to people, I can just press a button and say, hey, I'm not available. Or green, I'm available to talk. And that just came, uh, started working itself up and up and up. On, and it, it finalized to being a dating device. <laughs> so I said, hey, yeah, well, oh, the, the girl next next to me is pretty cute. So I'll just go green and... uh or a different type of, uh, I'm uh, I'm single or whatever. It just came with all this crazy stuff. But at the end, it, you, you can see that you can do branding. You can do you can use it for probably emergency emergency uh, button or some other kind of stuff that it's actually usable for. Yeah, that kind of brainstorming can often lead to really innovative ideas. You, you know, like like you say, you can start it at one point with an idea that. Maybe it doesn't seem obvious at, at first, but sometimes you end up with something that's brilliant that yeah. if you hadn't taken it through that series of steps and gone down that path, you, you know, you never would have thought of that to begin with. Yeah. It's, um, and I think that's, that's something that uh, um, aerospace industry kind of broadly tends to employ to a fairly large degree, yeah. um, which, which can lead to, you know, all kinds of interesting things. Yeah, and you see, I mean, you see people there from Boeing, from Airbus, from the seat OEMs, from the airlines. There was all people there, and you're, you're talking about VPs from VPs up and directors uh, of innovation, blah, blah, all this, I mean, interesting people that can actually do something about it, right? Yeah. Yeah, one, one of the more innovative things that we've seen recently that I'm sure you've seen, Jacobo, is uh, instead, of, if you don't want to put down your whole tray table, they now have a little cup holder that's just a little round yeah. circle that you can unfold and just put your cup of water in there. And uh, and that's wonderful. I mean, what a brilliant idea that, that, that I just love that, you know, came out of the blue. Yeah, I've, I've seen that. Yeah. I've seen that. 
Hakobo, I wanted to touch on the uh, ESG initiatives. Okay. That, uh, that that the company is uh, is undertaking environmental, social, and governance. Because I've gotten the impression that uh, I think you're probably pretty proud of some of the things that you've been doing. Yeah, uh, you know, this was a program that we started since the pandemic. Uh, during the pandemic, we had a lot of canceled orders, so we have we had a huge inventory of materials, and we said, "All right, we've been talking about this. We need to do something about it now." And we didn't want to be that type of that typical company that will go and talk about sustainability and this and that, but really doesn't do anything about it. And so we went into this um, program with a Mex- with a government government here in Chihuahua, and we said, "All right, we have there's a local tribe here called Tarahumara. These guys live in the mountains, and uh, they don't have a lot of work. Uh, they're always like kind of." selling stuff in the street so they can earn more money and additional income and stuff like that. So we said, all right, you know what? Let's help these guys. What can we do so we can help them and and create more income? So we went to a program with the local government and say, all right, help me gather them. Help me uh, gather a bunch of, of, of the, these native people so we can train them on cut and saw. Some of them know it already. So we can train them in cotton saw, and we can donate all the materials to them, so they can they can create products with that and and earn additional income. So we started doing that, and we started donating complete hives of of leather, synthetic leather, uh, velcros, threads, everything for them, so they can start making products. And it was amazing the results that they were making. They were they started doing. Uh, Aprons, uh, wallets, wine holders, uh, tablecloths, belts, a bunch of stuff that it was really, really amazing. So the government uh, has a store in two stores downtown where they allow them to put their products in so they can be sold. So now we have the whole circle there. We're also so we're donating the material. They're transforming into products, and the government is helping helping us to help them to put them in a store where they can sell them. Yeah. So it's been very great. We've helped over uh, 40 now, like 40, 40 uh, people train them. And I mean, each one of these guys have at least three or four kids. So you're talking about 200 people being helped out of this, this program. And um, so it's been great. We're, we're now, uh, we started this also Avalon, the leasing company it has always been on board with us and they've been, sending us material as well. So whenever they change from one client to another one, they send us a bunch of backs and bottoms. And that also helps them. Uh, it's not only the hives that we give them and the scrap that we give them from our production floor, but we also give them complete backs and bottoms and headrests, and they can use it to do a lot of parts from that. We donated also some equipment. Avalon just agreed to send them $3,000 for equipment. So we can do, buy equipment, some solar panels, so they can not waste any electricity and work with solar panel. So the complete circle, we're kind of trying to do it complete so we can reuse the whole thing. And it's been super fun. Uh, the guys are super excited. The team in SoySide is also very excited. And and now we're moving into also uh, working with people in jail. So we're sending the material to jail because they're, they do not do anything besides be there, obviously. So they're, they actually do a lot of work. 
So the the uh, the agreement was we'll send the material there, we we'll donate it, they will get paid with the products that they produce, and at least fifty percent of their income has to go to their families outside. The oh. rest they can either pay it for their debt that they have to pay there uh, to get out of jail, or they can use it to buy whatever they want because uh, yeah. they also need money inside. So that's also been good. And uh, we're working with two jails right now in Chihuahua. Uh, I'm actually talking to a person in Mexico City tomorrow to see if we can start working with jails over there in Mexico City as well. Uh, because the, the material is just too much. It's a lot of material. And if I start getting all the airlines to send me their scrap, it's, <laughs> it's just going to be insane, right? It's just too much material. You'll have a full-time job just trying to yeah, uh, know. you know, get it into the hands of people who can make something with it. Yeah, but it's been fun, and we're very proud of it. Yeah, you must be. I think it's wonderful when uh, a, a company takes on that kind of responsibility and and gets that kind of results. I mean, you must feel really good about that personally. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we get together with them uh, uh, oftenly. We go visit them. We go buy stuff from them. Every time I fly away and I bring presents, I bring wallets or stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, we, we don't want to stop there. We want to see what else we can help them with, and what else we can reuse. Uh, there's a lot of work, there's a lot of talks on the on the cushion side. The cushions have been very difficult because once you add adhesives and stuff like that, it gets a little bit more complicated to reuse. But uh, at least to recycle, I mean, to recycle, maybe to reuse, we need to find different alternatives to reuse it. At least if, if, if it's not going to be able to recycle then at least we have to be able to to reuse it. Wonderful. Yeah, very interesting. Jacobo, where can people learn uh, more about Soisa? Probably the website's the best place? Yeah, uh, website, uh, soisa.com.mx. Uh, it's, it's always a good place. Uh, our LinkedIn page in Soisa has all the information as well. My personal uh, and, the, and Soisa Aircraft Interiors LinkedIn page we we try to upload a lot of information there so everybody can can participate or see it. Yeah, mainly those those three. We did a, a uh, an Instagram account mainly just for not not for all these purposes, but for uploading some other information. But on LinkedIn and on our webpage, uh, of course, I'm always available. Uh, if you guys have any questions or anything that you want to talk about, that's great. And Soisa is spelled S O I S A. Soisa Aircraft Interiors. Very good. Correct. Uh, Jacobo, I, I have to I have to ask you, um, so do you follow Formula One? Yes, of course. Of course. Um, I'm very disappointed about last week. Sergio weekend. Perez didn't uh, had some difficulties um, <laughs> yeah. last weekend in Japan. Pretty disappointed about this week. <laughs> yeah. He must be a hero in um, in Mexico. Yeah, well, there's, you know, there's not a lot of follower, followers of um, of the Formula One. But Wachego has grown a lot. Actually, you probably know the, the race in Mexico City is it's just one of the craziest ones. Uh, it just gets really, really packed, and it's super fun to go to. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Red Bull won at least with that race. Uh, they're already champions. Right. And, and you know what? Funny, for the first time in my Formula 1 uh, being a fan, and uh, I've, I've liked it for a while, since Kimi Raikkonen, I love Kimi Raikkonen. Hmm. But um, for the first time, I like the four guys that are, well, the two guys that are in Red Bull and the two guys that are in Ferrari. I actually like those guys. 
Yeah, yeah, they seem like people you you could like. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know we're getting a little far off from uh, from aviation, but I, one more question on that: Why is Sergio's nickname Checo? Because that's the nickname for Sergio's in Mexico. Oh, oh Checo. Okay. Checo. So most of the a lot of the Sergio's that you will see in Mexico, you can always call them Checo. Ah, okay. It's I don't know. It's like Jacob, Jake, maybe it's just yeah. the same. But Checo is is the nickname for Sergio's in in Mexico. Very good. All right. Jacobo, thank you again so much. We really appreciate it. Oh, guys, uh, I'm excited. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Talk to you about, uh, talk uh, about aerospace and about everything. Um, anytime, anytime. Okay. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. What's up with the geeks? Micah. What's news with you? Oh, just a fun little thing. I think the last time I was on, I told you guys I had my first flight in a Cirrus and an SR-22. And uh, I have some friends that have this beautiful home right on Casco Bay. And it's so hard to find them gifts. And his birthday came up. And what I did while I was in the air, uh, my friend that flew me, we circled around at 1,500 feet. And I took a couple of photos of his whole home from 1,500 feet on the water, got it blown up and got it framed and gave it to him for his birthday because he hates to fly. And he just loved it. And it was just such a, another wonderful thing that you can do that you wouldn't think about from GA flying and, and, and how just terrific it is. And how much I really appreciate it. And I think those of us who don't have a chance to fly GA as often as, as some others really get to appreciate when they're in the air, just how, how beautiful it is. Yeah. All right. Um, oh, I'll mention um, eatattheairport.com. We mentioned this last episode, and I just wanted to report that uh, all of the submissions that people had submitted to eatattheairport.com, I've, I've got them all incorporated. They're they're all they're all updated. I haven't started tackling the Washington State airports that the, the huge list that we uh, we got last week. I haven't started those, but all the rest of them are up there. And again, if you're if you're not familiar with it, it's a sort of a browsable map that shows you eating establishments at airports. So if you're going to be traveling to a particular airport, want to support the airport uh, or the diner there, or the eating establishment there, you can. Or um, what I'll often do when I'm traveling by car is if I'm uh, going going past a, like a small GA airport or something, I'll uh, look in there and see if there's a place to eat and uh, give them the business um, rather than somebody else just along the road. You give everybody the business. I do, don't I? But uh, <laughs> not I you guys. I wonder if somebody was going to comment on that. But... Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, take a look at that and, uh, you know, spread that around your networks you know if you want feel free to uh, you know kind of help promote it it's it's for you guys we don't get anything from it uh it is crowd sourced uh, and maintained basically so if you uh, are aware of a eating establishment at an airport that's closed or has moved to someplace else there's a submission form at that website eatattheairport.com where you can let us know that there's a change so we can update the database you know, and I know, Rob, you didn't have a what's up with the geeks down there, but I got to know, did you already fly out to L.A. and get your daughter a car yet? <laughs> I did. Um, How did that it go? It was quite, quite an experience. Um, I think, 
<laughs> it's a long story, I guess. <laughs> oh, no. I, uh, when, I, when I left uh, Midway, um, uh, it, it looked – I mean, I, I didn't take a direct flight because I wanted to get out there on a particular day. And after this uh, four-day gig, I will never again fly anywhere that I cannot go direct. Uh, no longer am I going to uh, change, uh, you know, at, at some particular city. And uh, we, because as soon as an airplane is late getting on a midway, I'm already starting to panic because I know, oh my God, I've got to change planes and gates and all that at the other end. In this case, it was uh, uh, Las Vegas. And uh, when, when I got to Vegas, it, it was almost... Uh, it was about five minutes away from the door closing on my flight to L.A., and I thought, I'm never going to make this. But you know what? I, I've got to think positive. I'm just going to walk over there, and I come out, and I go, I, I, I hadn't been to L.A. or uh, to Vegas in a while. And I said, well, let's see. I'm coming in on the uh, the C concourse. Wait, where the heck is the – where are the B as in boy gates? Uh, and uh, I'm looking, and it is not apparent at all. Uh, you have to wander around unless you could find an airport employee, which I finally did. And they said, oh, you've got to go way down there to the, the center hub and then out the other way. And, and I'm already thinking, let's see, maybe there's, a, maybe there's a, a flight in a couple hours I can catch because I'm obviously not going to make this one. And, uh, and I walked and walked and walked and walked and walked some more. And, and walk some more through uh, barricades and around areas where they're rebuilding. And finally, I got to the B concourse, and I, I, you know, and it's already, I don't know, 20 minutes after the airplane should have left. And I, I walked up to the gate and I said, Can I get on the next flight or to LA? And she said, Well, why don't you get on this one? I said, Oh, you mean it's still here? She said, yes, we, we had some connecting people, that, uh, and we waited for them. And I said, oh, my God, aren't you people at Southwest lovely? I really, I really, I was very appreciative. And I got the last seat in the last row, but I didn't care. I had a carry-on bag anyway, and, and there was room for it. And uh, so we got on and sat there, and it was great. And then we sat there, and... Uh, you know the APU is running. It's it's not it's not uncomfortable, and we sat there and uh, talked to some of the people around us, and we sat there, and you know it's like Jeez. forty minutes after the plane was supposed to depart, and then finally they got going. Uh, but um, it was only by the hair of my chinny chin chin that I didn't miss. The connection, um, and but I, it's too I, to me. It's too stressful. I don't like that. Uh, I, you know, I, the pilot in me always wants to be early. Uh, I, I don't like showing up at the last minute for anything related to flying, and uh, I, I, I'm not doing it anymore. But to that, so that's a long answer to a short question. Yes, we did get her a car. Okay. <laughs> I used. I know everybody at, at home is listening, saying, "What does that have to do with getting your daughter a car?" And thank you, Patrick Wiggins, for your your note on uh, uh, on uh, Teslas. Uh, it's a tad out of my daughter's price range, but let's just say she found a really nice, uh, clean used car with low miles, and uh, and 
and I, I thought it was beautiful, just great. Uh, bought the car, and the guy said, uh, "You need to, you need, you know, copy of your insurance uh, showing that this is covered." And so my daughter called her insurance people, and they said, uh, "Okay, um, it'll take about two weeks." And we said, two weeks. "What?" <laughs> She's already insured. I shall not mention the company. Or their little friggin' green creature, but um, uh, you know, it, and and they said, "Oh no, that that's California when insurance is transferred, or if it's uh, close to the uh, uh, ending date of the policy, uh, you've got to basically start all over again." And there's a two week underwriting period. Uh, no insurance company in California will write a policy brand new right off the bat and insure you the same day. And of course, she's saying, "But, but I, I have your insurance." They say, well, you know, technicalities and what? Oh God! So she finally just picked up the car today. It was sitting at the uh, at the uh, uh, on the dealer's lot, and it was paid for. And it is amazing. I just all these little bits and pieces. I mean, I haven't purchased a car in a long time. And thank you for asking, Micah. You're a you're a man of. Uh, Great memory. No, I'm sorry um, he did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but you know, he bought it in LA and it was only driven once a week for 20 years by just one little old lady from Pasadena. Yeah, well, you know, and the, the, the guy said something about a little old lady from Pas- Pasadena. I said, no, no, no. She had a shiny red, not, it was a shiny red super stock Dodge. Yeah, Terror of the said. Colorado Boulevard. So again, it, it, was, uh, it was an interesting experience. Um, uh, I got back uh, late coming out of L.A., uh, and I got into Midway at, I think, 1.30 in the morning, uh, Chicago time. didn't take me too long to drive home, uh, maybe a half hour. But then, you know how it is when you're traveling and you're, you're wide awake when you get home, and you can't just fall into bed because your, your brain is still going 90 miles an hour. I think I probably went to sleep about 3 o'clock or something like that. I don't think I'm much of a world traveler any longer. I, I really, I, I'm really not. Uh, I, I remember the, the 11 hours coming back from Rome a few months back, and I was just wrecked. Well, let me apologize to our listeners for asking and let you know that the email address is I am really offended at yahoo.com. <laughs> oh, my. So, Micah, you found a, uh, you've been listening to the radio or something? Yeah, I was listening to uh, Hawaii Public Radio, and um, you can ask me why if you want, but if you have to that, I was I just going to say why. Um, I, I really like listening to NPR, All Things Considered, in Morning Edition, but sometimes I sleep too late for Morning Edition, and uh, it starts at noon or 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Hawaii, so I can listen to it for two hours there, and, and, and uh, the NPR's uh, All Things Considered which goes from 4 to 6 on the East Coast, starts at 10 p.m. in Hawaii, uh, East Coast time in Hawaii, so I can listen to it there. So I'm listening to Hawaii Public Radio, and there was a story about uh, step-by-step guidance is available to travelers at the Honolulu Airport, and it's offered by a company called IRA, uh, A-I-R-A, and um, and I after and I I heard that story the same day that last week's episode came out uh, with our guest uh, Michael uh, Switek, and he was talking about 
the difficulty of traveling if you are visually impaired. Uh, and, and I heard that story, and I said, this is perfect. And I know he mentioned Ira, didn't spell it for us, A-I-R-A. Uh, and I said, wow, this is just amazing, and it's a wonderful service that you can call, and they will offer you guidance or walk you through the airport in Hawaii. It's offered in other airports as well. And we'll uh, put a link to that article in the show notes, so you can find that at airplanegeeks.com. You don't have the NPR app on your phone? Yeah, but they don't let you listen to All Things Considered or Morning Edition. They can, they'll let you listen really? to other things. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. I, we can here in Chicago, but hey, I, we don't. All right, one more item. This comes from my brother, Greg. He found a listing on Craigslist for a Pratt & Whitney 4360, also called the Wasp Major. David, you must be a little familiar with this engine. Yeah, I know of one. I know of one that's lurking around, and that was um, there's one that's down at um, Cape May Airport at the NAS Wildwood Museum. Um, it's a big engine. It's a very big engine. It's a it's a radial engine with 28 cylinders, which is um, nuts. What, six six banks? No, no. I think no, it's four. Isn't it four bank? My wait. Yeah, four banks of, of seven cylinders. Yeah, right? four banks of seven. Yeah. yeah. It's like sort of like four wasps put together. This is a, a listing in Craigslist. It's uh, said to be in excellent salvage condition. It comes with a display trailer and mounting struts. No paperwork. We were talking about paperwork earlier. No current certification paperwork. Um, a few uh, extra uh, spares. Uh, this was removed from a 1955 Douglas C124 Globemaster II. And, uh, these engines, David, were used on a, not a kind of a, a bunch of different airplanes. Yeah, there's a, there, it's a generational aircraft. Um, the, the, probably the most famous one would be the B, the B36 Peacemaker, which had six of these monsters pointed backwards. Um, the then the um, Boeing. 377 family, which is the Stratofrancher, the KC-97, the Boeing B-50, and the 377 Stratocruiser. They're all the same family of aircraft. Um, so you're talking about post-war, probably Pratt's last big hurrah in um, reciprocating engines. Yeah, according to Wikipedia... This uh, monster was 4,362.5 cubic inches, which is 71.5 liters. It says it was the largest displacement aviation piston engine to be mass-produced in the United States, 4,300 horsepower. You know what's amazing? 100. Wow. That's about one horsepower per cubic inch. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, that was always the benchmark. I th it didn't... Well, it ha I think it had airflow issues. I, I think that there were cooling problems with it. You know, when you stack all these cylinders, even though they're offset, you know, each row is offset a little bit, um, I think there were still uh, cooling issues with it. But in any event, if, you're, uh, if you want to pick one of these up, maybe for your aviation museum or something like that, uh, list price, uh, list price, the firm price offered on Craigslist is $12,000. Maybe you could use it in a Formula One, Max. <laughs> yeah. So that doesn't include shipping. No, no. Uh, you'd have to have something that, let's see, does it talk about 
how much this weighs. Uh, it doesn't, does it? Yeah, no. I I don't know how much it weighs. I don't know what the weight is, but you know, these things are in a lot of museums. I think Udvar Hazi has one of these. They're just a, all over the place. There's a lot of these. Sometimes they're cutouts, you know, cutaways rather, which uh, is kind of interesting for a radial engine, but. I mean the the it's it's being pull, pulled by a mid-sized pickup truck on the trailer rob so it can't be too bad. Yeah. I probably couldn't pull it with the mini though. Uh probably not. All right. Well, with that we're going to wrap it up. We want to thank you for listening to the Already? Airplane Geeks podcast. I know it's that time. We want to thank Hakobo. I didn't tell you about the rest of my trip. So okay. After I I got the riddle. <laughs> Jeez. So you can find the uh, uh, the Soisa aircraft interiors at their website, soisa.com.mx. And, of course, you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. You can go directly to the show notes for this episode at airplanegeeks.com slash 767. And our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right. Rob, any closing thoughts? Any any. Brief closing, a short, quick closing thoughts. No. Okay. Thanks. You got to say jetwine.com. Oh, uh, well, yes. C- come to uh, jetwine.com and you can see all the great things that Scott Spangler and I put together in there every every week. And uh, But I'm, I'm not going to belabor the point uh, unless, of course, you want to know uh, what I can do. I can explain... <laughs> Oh, right. Okay. There'll, there'll be an article about it on jetwine.com soon. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right, David Vanderhoof, uh, anything from you? Um, the birds are killing Tampa Bay, and I want to get off this call to go watch the rest of the game. All right. You're, you're going to be able to do that in mere seconds. Micah, anything uh, you'd like to say? Oh, you can find me on uh, what uh, everything the New York Times quotes as X, formerly known as Twitter, but I think they should just call it Zitter because that's the way it would be pronounced if it was started with an X. And I'm Mainfly there, M-A-I-N-E-F-L-Y. And uh, today, uh, as we're recording this, the 25th of September, we just released episode 54, I think, of the thejourneyisreward.org. Yeah, check that out, guys. It's great podcast. I love listening to uh, you, Micah. And uh, that other guy, Brian. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. He's in he's in Germany, right? Yeah, now. he's in Germany right now, and I'm sorry he missed the tequila tasting. He would have been perfect for that. Absolutely. Yep. So so no no little worms, huh? Mescal. Oh, okay. Enough with the worms. Okay. All right, I'm Max Flight. You can find me at thirty thousand feet dot com and we'll ask that you all please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Night, everybody. Miska, Muska, Mouseketeer, Airplane Geeks, and time is here. Keep the blue side up. Keep going, Steve. We're proud of you. And thanks for listening. So can I ask a question that has nothing to do with aircraft interiors? <laughs> of course, sure. Uh, what, here for? what what kind of tequila did you bring to your booth in <laughs> Seattle? No, uh, we bring it. We, we bring it to Hamburg. Uh, oh, Hamburg. Okay. So we always bring uh, this Jose Cuervo, the eighteen hundred.
Oh, we yeah, always yeah. bring some of that bottles. Uh, but that's very common in the U.S. But uh, this time we brought a couple of different ones. We brought uh, Maestro Tequilero. It's called Maestro Tequilero. Uh, Maestro Dobel. Have you heard Dobel? So Maestro Dobel, that's one. We also brought Herradura. We also brought uh, another one called Centenario. Wow. And then uh, Don Julio 70. You've, you've seen Don Julio, right? Hmm. But yes, there's yes. a Don Julio with 70 years. And then it was funny. We brought uh, we brought another tequila that is it's um, tamarind flavor. Ooh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, and uh, what, it's what very flavor? Tamarind. I don't even know what that is. It would go really good with Vietnamese food. Oh, tamarind here. Hold on. Isn't it called tamarind? Yeah, well? tamarind. Yep. It kind of looks like a cross between a plum and a tomato, and you, 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 it looks like you can bite right into it, but you really need to peel it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, tamarind. All right. So it has a very sweet flavor. So uh, actually for everybody that would say, no, I don't like tequila, they would try that and they would love it. Hmm. Did you have a favorite amongst all those? Uh, yes, I always. Uh, yeah, Maestro Lobel. This is my wife here. <laughs> Hello. Wow. Hi. Hello. <laughs> you, you, you really went up, huh? Wow. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to say, to show you my bad taste, when I lived in Mexico, I was a fan of, uh, of Oso Negro gin, which you oh can't get up God. here. <laughs> no. No, no, no. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll just Jeez. give you one hint. One hint is, if the tequila bottle doesn't say 100% agave, yeah. just don't, don't do drink it. it. Hmm. Don't do it. Yeah. It's probably not good for your eyes or for some part of your body. <laughs> <laughs> At least for a hangover, it's not going to be good. <laughs> you know what I was going to ask? Oh, I forgot to ask uh, uh, Jacobo. Uh, do, do they still put the worms in the tequila? That's not tequila. Uh, it's not? No, it's not in tequila. It's in, um, uh, what do they distill the tequila from? I'm trying to remember the name of the... Yes, I'm 100% sure. Oh, okay. oh, I always thought that was the, um, the tequila thing was they put a little... I, I never could figure out why they put a dead worm in there, but... Um, it's in, Maybe the worm was alive when they threw it in. It, it's only in mezcal, not tequila. Oh. Mezcal, M-E-Z-C-A-L. That's what they... They used to put worms in there to make sure there was enough alcohol distilled from agave. It's also distilled from agave, but it's not tequila. So was the worm alive when they threw it in there? Yeah, and yeah, and, and it dies, and as long as it's preserved, it, 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 this is back, you know, years ago. It would show that there was enough alcohol in it to make it uh, worthwhile. I see. Okay. Why do I know that? I well, don't know. hey, <laughs> I, I don't know what's worse, that or the butt sweat on the seat. Welcome to, into this week in adult beverages. I know. Brought to you by the Airplay Geeks. <laughs> 